Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have gathered us together again to study your word, through which you speak to us words of instruction, admonition, and comfort. Guide us by your Holy Spirit in our study, uh, that we may be renewed in penitence and in faith, so that receiving the forgiveness of our sins, we may be strengthened and assured of your, in your mercy. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, just a very quick word about the Psalms in the service. So the Psalm, uh, uh, each Sunday has the introit Psalm, uh, which, uh, and the selection of which goes back a very long time uh, into kind of mists of history. So we don't really know uh, uh, who, who was involved or, uh, or even uh, in choosing them or who chose the introit psalms. And uh, likewise, we, when it comes to the uh, introit psalms, those are, they are generally speaking supposed to be connected in some way to the uh, theme of the uh, gospel of the day. Uh, the service used to have only two readings, epistle and gospel, um, until very recently, in my lifetime. Uh, but uh, from the 70s onwards, particularly, a third reading was added, which is the Old Testament reading. Uh, the gospel reading for each Sunday is the main, uh, main Bible reading, and sometimes the epistle is connected to the gospel, sometimes is not. Uh, and there's no particular rhyme or reason to that. Uh, it's such an old system that it's kind of got a bit creased on the way. But when the Old Testament readings were added, they were added by committee uh, far more recently, and uh, they were generally speaking selected such that the gospel, uh, the Old Testament reading matches in some way the gospel. And, um, and then the Psalms, uh, Psalms were added at that time as well. So by the time uh, we get to the, uh, the Middle Ages, late, late Middle Ages, the introit psalm has shrunk to just uh, a short, the, uh, the antiphon, which is the kind of first, first line, and, and one verse of the psalm. So the introit is really, really, uh, really short. And they are, subsequently they become backfilled, so we have a longer introit psalm now. But the Old Testament, uh, sorry, the psalm uh, that uh, was uh, selected to, uh, was selected to accompany the, uh, the Old Testament reading. So the idea is that we have an Old Testament reading, then we have a psalm that reflects on the themes of the Old Testament reading, then we have an epistle, then there's a gradual psalm which is supposed to uh, reflect on the epistle reading in some way, and then you have uh, the gospel. And so these psalms uh, that we will be studying in the next few weeks are designed, if you like, or are selected rather, uh, to... Uh, uh, help us reflect on what we have just heard in the Old Testament. That's how they are chosen. Today's psalm is Psalm 32. Um, which... Happening? Yes. Um, just a question. Yes. W would these um, psalms be traditionally sung or chanted or read in, say, your services? In our services, they're sung or chanted. Right. And psalms, if, when you say traditionally... Psalms were always sung. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the practice obviously varies you know, to what degree congregations are competent to sing and what, what kind of complexity of psalms. I mean, the psalms themselves, um, they vary because some psalms are clearly written to be sung by professionals. So you might have, you know, you have a psalms that are appointed for, 
the the um, for a leader or you know like for a single a solo singer some some of them are uh, are appointed for singing by the choir and then there are others that are clearly designed for congregational singing so like there's some psalms that you have the first a first line and they said let Israel now say and then the whole thing is repeated and you've got the rest of the psalms so the idea is that you've got a uh, it clearly clearly seems to be a congregational thing but they always sung um, so Psalm 32 uh, is our psalm uh, today it's one it's been designated since the Middle Ages as one of the seven penitential psalms um, <clears throat> for reasons that I hope uh, will be obvious but I thought that before we look at the psalm itself we'd look at the Old Testament reading to which it responds we won't study the Old Testament text but we will simply read it and then we look at the psalm uh, and the Old Testament reading is from Genesis chapter 3. So it's the, it's the account of the fall. And I know that you're all very familiar with it already, but uh, it's always beneficial, I think, to, to read it uh, again. Uh, so uh, Genesis 3 and the first uh, uh, 15 uh, verses. And David, since you are unmuted, do you mind reading it for us? Yeah. <clears throat> Genesis 3, verse 1 to 15. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of, of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I, I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave, it, gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Thank you. So familiar account of the fall into sin, and there you have both the fall into sin, and you also have God's uh, punishment, the beginning of God's, uh, the account of God's punishment of sin, but also um, just below the surface of the text already we have the first 
promise of the forgiveness of sins uh, in the promise of the seed uh, of the woman bruising the head of the serpent. And so that's the, uh, that is the text to which the psalm uh, is responding. And so the theme is sin and the forgiveness of sins, and hence Psalm 32, uh, which is a great psalm uh, of, uh, on the theme of forgiveness. Um, I, I read recently that it was uh, St. Augustine's favourite psalm, and when he was on his deathbed, uh, he had it written out kind of so that he could see the text uh, from his bed as he, as he lay dying. And there's a, a famous uh, heading, that, uh, a phrase uh, that um, Augustine uh, coined to do with this psalm. Um, and I, I wrote it down to share with you. <clears throat> said, it is intelligence first to know that you are a sinner. So intelligence and knowledge begins with knowing that you are a sinner. And this psalm is... Uh, is as we very influential within the scripture itself, as we will see, it is quoted in the New Testament. It is alluded to in the New Testament, and it's even uh, even alluded to or within the Old Testament itself. And it is this uh, reflection on on forgiveness. And what I thought we'd do first, if we read the whole psalm, and talk a little bit about the background of how this psalm came to be written before we, and then we will look at it uh, verse by verse. Uh, psalm, so we turn to Psalm 32. And um, Sarah, would you be happy to read that for us? <coughs> the whole thing. The whole thing, yes. <clears throat> Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Thank you. Thank you. Um, any initial reflections or thoughts or questions about the psalm before we uh, delve into it? Does any, anything jump out at you? Well, there's a bit that's in our service, isn't there? Yes. For a reason, <laughs> which I hope is, is obvious. Sorry, I missed Sarah's comment. What was that? 
One section of it is in our service. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Thank so you. Part, part of the service preparation for confession of sins in our service. <clears throat> Does anyone remember off the top of your head where this is quoted in the New Testament? I'll tell you later. Okay, I'll keep. If, if not, we'll we'll come to it. But go on, David. I'm going to have a guess because the word imputations in it. Romans. Can you narrow it down at all? Um, not is there a chocolate brownie in it? Sorry. Is there a chocolate brownie in it? I don't know. What's like, I, I, have you got any in the cupboard? No. Um, I'm trying to be a good boy. I'm going to go for Romans five. You're very close. Romans four. Ah. Oh, yeah, not bad. Yes. So we, we'll, we'll return to that uh, as well uh, later on. So it's called a masculine of David. We had a masculine last week as well, Psalm 89. I did some more research into what a masculine might be uh, since we had a slightly... I, I, I felt that I, was, I, I didn't give a very good account of it last week. It seems that <coughs> it says in the footnote, probably a musical or liturgical term, um, especially older commentators of the Bible, um, um, but also more modern ones, uh, seem to be of the opinion that the likely uh, likely meaning of a mass kill is it has, that it has something to do uh, with meditation, kind of uh, reflecting on, on, on what you know. Um, that's certainly how it was uh, translated in the Septuagint and also in the, uh, in the old kind of ancient Latin uh, translations of the Bible. So it's a, it's a sort of reflection or meditation. Uh, <clears throat> um, and it's written by David. Now, the, it's, it's speaking of, da or David is speaking there of having concealed his sin and the burden of his sin and then the the deliverance that came from confessing his sin. And this takes us very obviously to one particular part, uh, event in David's life, own life, namely his uh, sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. So in, in 2 Samuel, when David sins by uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba and then has Uriah, her husband, uh, murdered in order to conceal that sin. So it wasn't just that David kind of committed sin and said nothing about it, but he went to murderous lengths, literally, to conceal his own sin. Um, this is all in 2 Samuel um, uh, chapters 12 and 13. And it, it is a turning point in David's, uh, David's reign, because from there on, uh, things begin to fall apart and unravel. Part of the uh, part of the uh, punishment of David's sin is that, uh, or the way that that punishment cascades down his family is that there is increasing instability within his family and leads to bloodshed within his own own family, uh, amongst his children, amongst his amongst his sons. <clears throat> now. We won't read the whole thing uh, now, but you will, rem you will remember what happens. There's a, a war. David uh, fails to, or decides not to uh, lead the nations, uh, his, the armies in the war, but he sends the armies under the leadership of Joab, 
the commander of the troops, he says in Jerusalem, one evening he goes walking on the roof of his palace, he sees Bathsheba uh, washing, and he is uh, overcome by lust, has her brought into his palace and uh, sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. In order to conceal the pregnancy, uh, he sends for Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband, who is fighting with the armies to bring him back and tries to entice him to go home uh, to his wife so that the adultery might be concealed. He refuses uh, out of solidarity with the soldiers that are, are fighting. So in the end, he sends Uriah back to Joab with a letter for Joab in which that letter, in which letter he uh, gives uh, orders basically for uh, Uriah to be, um, it is it's for the battle to be fought in such a way that Uriah is killed in battle. Uriah is killed in battle, and as soon as it's it's half decent, David goes mar marries Bathsheba, and she gives birth uh, to a child. Um, but in in the meantime. David has married Bathsheba, she's still pregnant. God sends Nathan the prophet to David uh, to uh, uh, reveal to David that God knows his sin. Do you remember the, par the, the story that Nathan tells of a man, you know, a rich man and a poor man who are neighbors? Uh, and the poor man has just one animal, owns a little lamb who's to him like a daughter. And when the rich man holds a feast, instead of taking one of his own animals, he goes and takes the, the uh, lamb belonging to the poor man and prepares that for a feast. And David's hearing this incense, uh, hearing the stories incense, is that that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are that man. You are that man. And the key verse uh, in that is uh, in chapter 12 uh, and verse 13. Uh, where I said earlier 12 and 13 is 11 and 12, chapter 11 and 12, uh, in, in 2 Samuel, where we hear these, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. I have sinned, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. And in the immediate aftermath of this, David writes Psalm 51. Uh, Psalm 51, which uh, says even in the heading, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. So Psalm 51 is an immediate response, and it's also a penitential psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And so David says this heartfelt confession of sin. And uh, halfway through the psalm, we have this verse, verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So David's praying for forgiveness and for God to sustain him and not to abandon him. And he says, when, this, uh, when, when he receives forgiveness, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And it seems that Psalm 32 is a, like a fulfillment of that particular pledge. That upon, upon later on, 
upon great, you know, uh, upon uh, great reflection, if you like, uh, on all that he has received by way of, of forgiveness in the uh, midst of his sin. David now pens a second psalm, Psalm 32, uh, where he teaches transgressors his ways. He, he meditates and, uh, on, um, on the gift of forgiveness, his own experience, and, and uses that as a basis of instruction in <clears throat> uh, the merits of confessing your sins and the gracious outcome of that. So that's kind of the background. That's the background, um, historical background, uh, to this psalm. Any any thoughts, questions, comments before we start? Any, anything from that? It's, it's, a, it's a very familiar Bible story. We studied it a few years ago uh, in great detail. But it's, it's good always to think of this, in, you know, think of the historical setting. These psalms, they're not just a random... Uh, a random bits of literature that have just been written, they, they all arise out of the experience uh, of um, of God's people. And in this particular case, we actually know the details of it. And remember then, remember as we go along, uh, that, or keep in mind that the, the backstory, because it's a, it's a really, really sordid story. I mean, David behaves absolutely abominably. And so when he talks about my sin, my iniquity, my transgression, covering up my sin, we're not we're, we're not talking about the fact that he, you know, he was he was a bit grumpy in the morning uh, with his family and and tried to pretend that it wasn't the case. We're talking about you know, really really serious guilt um, of the sort that most people don't get don't get up to most Christians, and the outcome is nevertheless the same. So. Back to the beginning then. <clears throat> In the first two verses, we have three different names for sin, and three, uh, and we also have um, three different responses to sin by God. Three different things that God does uh, to sin. So, verse one and verse two of Psalm thirty-two. What are the three three names for sin there, first of all? Transgression, sin and iniquity. Transgression, sin and iniquity. So blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, blessed against whom the Lord counts no uh, iniquity. Now we, we use them as called synonyms, but they're, they're not quite quite uh, synonyms. So what is transgression? Any, any suggestions of what transgression might might bite, might actually mean specifically? You transgress. It feels like you <clears throat> you go against the thing that's being given to you to do. You've got an instruction and you transgress it. You go away from it. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's got it's got this idea of rebe rebellion in it. That you 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 um, as he said you go against. The direct command you ignore or or, or contra, um, contravene God's specific command. Sin uh, means is specific. The, the word for sin uh, has the same root as the word for a mark or a, or a, or a target. So if you think of like archery, you've got a target or a mark you're trying to hit, and and if you miss or the arrow falls short. 
that's what happens with sin. So you fall short. It's, it's like in Romans 3. All people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've missed the mark. You haven't made it. Which is a different kind of thing. It's, it's like a failure as opposed to a direct rebellion. And for example, when in the law of Moses, whenever there's a sin offering, that's the, this is the word that's used there. Uh, and finally, we've got iniquity, uh, which is a, one, is, is a word that only occurs in the language of Biblish, as far as I can tell. It's not a word that we tend, tend to use in any other uh, context. Um, any, any idea what that might mean? No? It's got a, it has to me a sort of sense of evil, like doing bad stuff. <laughs> yes, iniquitous behaviour. Yeah. Yes. Um, it, again, it, it comes from the the, the root uh, word comes kind of um, the idea of crookedness. Something's crooked. So in terms of activities, like you're doing the wrong thing. You're you're involved in something that incurs guilt. So it's they all the, those three things. They're all kind of. They're not entirely different, but they, they are three different aspects, if you like, or, or three different ways in which we fall into sin. One is that you are a re you're rebellious. You directly go against what's been given to you. The other one is that you are, you're just not up to much. You, you miss the mark. You, you fall short. And the third one has this idea of you kind of perverted action, guilty action, where you're crooked. Presumably so, that... Um... When they say they sorry, um, but then come again, because that's what most people do, isn't it? Or yes, I mean repeat it and say you fall and say yes. 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 So this is not a this is not well as we'll see. This is not talking about a one-off action necessarily. Mm. It's whenever. Yeah. Whenever this uh, happens. Presumably, you know, we know some of it, but we don't know all of it. We're always learning more. Yes. Yes. But this, I mean, we'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. But um, the 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 one of the key ideas here is that is is it, that this this is dealing with uh, someone who knows their sin. So this is not a psalm about knowing that you are sinful. Kind of this theoretical knowledge that we are all imperfect and we all sin, even when we don't we don't always necessarily notice. This is a psalm. Dealing with a guilty conscience. I've, I've said, said a few times before this, but you know, very few people, I think, stay awake at night contemplating the fact that they're a poor, poor, miserable sinner just like everybody else. But you might lie awake at night thinking about a particular thing of which you're guilty. And sometimes we are guilty of falling short. Just have, We haven't done what we ought to do. Sometimes we're guilty of having done the very thing that we, the very opposite of what we're told to do. And sometimes we're guilty of having done things that are just, that, that, that bring us guilt, bring us guilt because they are, you know, we feel like we are, we are entirely in the wrong, wrong line of business. Uh, we, you know, we are, we are engaged in, engaged in activity or lifestyle um, that is, is twisted from the truth. And what, God? As far as I'm, I think about this is that we might, think, oh, I'm never going to do that again. And the next minute, you're just doing it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that we don't want to do it. 
Um, so it sort of goes round and round, doesn't it? That um, it's not like, you know, well, I guess you could, you could kill, kill me and then there'd be nothing. But, you know, that's the thing, isn't it? That we think, oh, no, no, I didn't mean that, no. And, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, and I think, for me, it's like, well, do you know, I'm just going to say sorry. Um, and, and, like, when it needs to be that again, I should say, sorry, I didn't mean that. You know, that rather than sort of just, um, well, I don't know. I, I just feel that, how does this work? And, and, um, and of course, in order to hurt somebody, um, they, well, I mean, I'm on my own, so, um, and, you know, oh, well, maybe, what am I going to do now? I'll ring up somebody and, and, or, you know, but then after that, it's gone. Does that? Yeah, I mean, we'll, 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 we'll look at that as we go through the psalm. Okay. We'll see exactly what the kind of the, what response we are expected to have to the fact that we discover our sin, you know, whether it's repeated or, or, you know, whether it's an old one that's come back or a new one. I mean, David wasn't in the habit of committing adultery and murder, you know, year in, year out. And oops, I did it again. That wasn't a problem. It is something, this is a very a particular thing. But this is, I mean, this links very uh, clearly to uh, the, the whole whole psalm and, and, and the whole question here. Links very closely to what what in, in, in kind of, <clears throat> in Lutheran uh, tradition is called the Office of the Keys. That... And, and the um, gift of confessing your sins, and particularly the ones of which you are aware, which you know and feel in your heart, as the Catechism puts it. And there's a di- and, and that's the thing. So this is dealing with the conscience, and and uh, uh, knowledge and assurance of God's mercy. Uh, on you know, in 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 response to our sins. So I think I hope that by the end of it, we'll kind of answer. We will have answered your question as we get to the end. So we've got three kinds of sin. What are the three actions that God takes against sin? Forgiving, covering, and not counting against. Not counting against, or as some translations would be, not imputing. Uh, imputing. You see, it's the language of accountancy. You know, whatever is 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 marked against your account. So that we've got forgiveness, and that the again the literal meaning of forgiveness here the, of the Hebrew word is to to lighten someone's load, to take away a burden from someone. So you're carrying it. This is kind of uh, this is Pilgrim's Progress stuff. You know, you've got your sack of sack of guilt on your back, and then it falls off. Somebody takes away the thing. So it, um, the um, the he, uh, the Septuagint Greek translation uses the word that we have also in the New Testament. Translated usually forgiveness, but it really means that old older English translation remission of sins is taken away from me. It's not just God says, "Oh, never mind, it's all right." No, He says He takes it away from me. Mm-hmm. So your transgression, your rebellion, is removed from you. It's no longer your burden. Uh, your sin is covered, so it's hidden. And the fact that you are you're not up to much. You're, you fall short, you miss the mark, that's all hidden away. So your, fall, your shortcomings are concealed, so that they're no longer visible. And the third one is that your iniquity, your crookedness, is not held against you. 
is not imputed to you. You're no longer guilty of it. And this word impute, uh, which uh, was used in um, older translations uh, or English translations, I think is, is a good one because it is, as, as David, you pointed out right at the beginning, it's the word that is also used in the New Testament. And we'll, we'll, um, this is where we now turn to the New Testament, uh, because these two verses are quoted by Paul in uh, Romans and chapter 4. And the whole question there is, who is righteous and who is not righteous? The question of righteousness. Righteousness meaning standing, you know, uh, that we, we have a good standing before God, that we, God, <clears throat> we can stand before God confident of our integrity, confident that we are, we are in God's good books, if you like. Does that come through law? Does it come through something else? And of course, Paul's argument throughout is that we, our righteousness is a gift from God received through faith, not by keeping the law. And so, uh, and he argues in chapter four of Romans from the example of Abraham. So going from chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 3, it says, What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So every time we have the word count, you can say impute. That's the more kind of theological language. So the whole thing is, what does God, in the kind of final accounting of you and of your life, what does God hold in, against your account or in, you know, impute to you? What, what, what does God in his divine bookkeeping, mark against your name. And the blessed are, those who are blessed to whom God does not count iniquity. And this, Paul argues in Romans 4, comes through faith. And this is why this psalm is so well beloved of Augustine, who is a great teacher of uh, God's grace, uh, received through faith, and to many others, and is such a comfort to us. So that it does not say at any point here, blessed is the man who manages not to sin. Blessed is the man who manages, who, who, who accomplishes a, a reduction in the number of transgressions, who has managed to shed iniquity. But rather, blessed is the man against whom God does not count the iniquity, whose transgression is forgiven, and whose sin is covered or hidden. Jesus. Well, this is, well, Jesus is sinless, but Jesus brings to us this forgiveness of sins, yes. Final word, uh, just a final comment on this word, which is the word blessed. Because there are different words that are translated into English as blessed. This does not, this is not the word that is used for blessing, like the Lord bless you, or, you know, that Lord blesses his people. This is the word that is also blessed in uh, in uh, the Beatitudes, which really means uh, happy or fortunate. Fortunate, not in the sense of lucky, but in the older sense of kind of the fortune smiles upon them, if you like. Oh, oh, how 
Oh, how happy, oh, what joy is to, comes to those. Oh, bliss. And so it's talking really about the happiness uh, uh, of, of the forgiven. And there is therefore, again, you know, if you think of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. You know, the, that, that it's about what, what comes as a result of God's grace and God's blessings. The answer is bliss, joy, happiness. Um, but the final, final uh, uh, line in verse 2, so where blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord comes in iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, what does this have to do with the rest of it, with what we've heard so far? This of um, who has no, de no deceit or guile. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. Is it to do with being honest about, about your state of sinfulness? So actually, if God is going to forgive your transgressions, cover your sins and account nothing against you, then you shouldn't be hiding, trying to hide things from God deceiving him and what was it in 1 John um, if we say we have no sin that, yeah God is uh, but if we yeah. confess our sins he's faithful and just yes so yeah, again and, and we will come uh, 1 John is we will look at it a bit later on uh, is, is directly connected to this psalm and I'm sure when John wrote that letter he had this psalm in his mind we uh, deceive ourselves <clears throat> yes yeah uh, if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves so this deceit has to do with honesty and sincerity in acknowledging your sin. So it's not just about saying sorry, uh, you know, uh, the external expression, but rather about contrition of heart. Uh, and again, you think think back to David's uh, David's uh, own um, story at this point. He engineered this great deception which may or may not have convinced others, but did not convince God. But until he gave up on that deceit and acknowledged his sin, his sin was his and was upon him. And most teachers of the church there, you know, throughout, including you know, the, the grace of reformers, have always concluded that David had lost the Holy Spirit. That David had lost faith at that point, but through the prophecy, prophecy, uh, the ministry of the prophet Nathan, he was restored to faith through repentance, which is why he then says in Psalms, you know, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, Psalm 51. So that is, this is like, the, this, those two verses are the, uh, <clears throat> are the heading of what the psalm whole time is about, and it's a summary of the the happy outcome of the forgiveness of sins, which is available to all who are penitent, all who repent of their sins, all who confess and admit their guilt. And then we come to this, uh, the, um, the teaching uh, where uh, David begins by speaking of his own, ex own, own experience. Verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all, the, all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. 
My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. As the um, the word it when it says strength, uh, the the literal meaning of the word is is like juice or sap. You know, the, so you think of a plant that it's it's life. Uh, the plant has life in it so long as it's moist. The moisture in the plant that, that uh, brings it. So um, it's a me- metaphor. Uh, hence the drying up as by the heat of summer you think of a wilting plant that loses its, its, its live, uh, uh, liveliness and loses its strength uh, if it withers um, and it's often used in the Old Testament as a, as a metaphor for vigour so we say for example um, uh, you know, Moses when he died was, he was full of vigour and literally he was full of, full of sap and he hadn't dried up and uh, <clears throat> so this is the uh, so so what's the uh, what's the problem here? Why is why is David there are three and four? Why is David suffering or struggling? What's the cause? What's the kind of immediate cause, if you like? And what, what's brought it upon himself? And, and and what's what's the kind of the immediate cause of his his hardship? It seems to be <clears throat> implied in the word silent that. He's not speaking out his confession to the Lord. Um, rather, he's just kind of bottling everything up, yeah, covering up maybe, uh, yeah. and hope these things will go away. Yes. Yeah, so he's he's keeping his his sin is within him, and he's keeping it as his own problem, if you like. He's he's trying to keep it from coming out, and he's so he's keeping silent about it. His mouth is shut, and what's the end result? What does that lead to? If you look at the beginning of verse 4. Well, it's um, back to Pilgrim's Progress. There's a, there's a weight on his shoulders. He calls it the hand of God, which yeah. so ultimately comes from the Lord, you know, the, the weight of the law and God's displeasure with sin. So he, he feels that weight upon him. Yes, it's the weight of, of, of God's displeasure, God's judgment on him. Your hand was heavy upon me. Um, it's the, you know, the accusation of the law. So his sin became his burden, and not only was his, was his sin there, but God's judgment against him. And clearly, you know, it seems to me uh, clear that, it's, it, uh, that uh, David here is speaking about the the guilt his his guilty conscience, which uh, was spiritually killing him. You know he was dying. He was like my you know he said my bones wasted. He, he he was like turning into an old man. He was rapidly aging. Uh, his life was leaving because of his the guilt of his sin, which was upon him. His guilt was within, and therefore God's judgment was upon him. Um. And this idea of God's hand being heavy upon you is, is not it's not only found here. Um, it's a it's a common expression. Um, so, for example, in um, Psalm thirty nine, uh, in uh, Psalm thirty nine, verse ten, uh, David sings, "Remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand." When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, 
You consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. So the idea that God, you know, when if God God rebukes us, God is uh, angry with us. If God accuses us, that accusation itself takes away our life. And the Book of Concord, uh, the, the Lutheran Confessions, often speak of the terrors of sin, the terror of conscience, which comes from knowing that God, uh, you know, God is against me. But so long as David kept his guilt within him and did not speak it out, pretended, you know, that was deceitfully pretended that it wasn't there, he was being destroyed by the weight of God's hand, by God's accusation. And so that is what happens when you conceal your sin. And so, and this is the heart of the psalm, this is the longest verse in the psalm, verse 5. This, this being the case, there's a change of tack. Now, we know the story in full. He didn't, David didn't just say, you know what? like the prodigal son, came to my senses and I'll go back. No, God sent a prophet. God sent um, God sent a messenger uh, of his word to restore David. And this is again, you know, this is something that I think is, <coughs> excuse me, that is so important for us to remember what we call, we call it the second use of the law. The second use when the law acts as a mirror to show us our sin. But when God puts his hand upon us, weighs heavily upon us, when he gives us our guilty conscience, when he shows us our sin from the law, he is being kind and gracious. Because that means that he is not leaving us in our sin. If you think back to Genesis 3, which we read at the very beginning, you know, there's one prohibition in all of creation that God had given to Adam and Eve. And that's the one that they decided to transgress. They transgressed God's direct command and word at the instigation of the serpent and took the forbidden fruit. And what's God's response? He comes to them and says, where are you? And invites them to confess their sin. He doesn't say, you know, he doesn't banish them straight away or strike them down or worse still, leave them to their own devices. He comes to them and he invites them to confess their sin. And even though there is a punishment and a consequence for that sin, a promise of salvation is already given there and there. So that, that's, you know, that's how God works already at the very beginning of the history of sin. And this is, you know, again, no doubt, one reason why this psalm was chosen to go with that reading. I acknowledge my sin to you. Um, I, I, I spoke it out. I, 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 I said it aloud. I, I, I admitted it. I confessed it. Um, the uh, Septuagint, again, it translates as kind of, I made known. I made known my sin to you. Not that God didn't know it, but I... I, I um, I, I stopped pretending and I did not cover my iniquity. See that how, how that's uh, 
that word is used there. So we already had verse one, blesses the man whose sin is covered. And how does the blessing come about? I did not cover my iniquity. I did not hide, try to conceal the fact that I had acted crookedly, that I was guilty. I said, and this is the bit that is in our service, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And here that uh, iniquity really means, you know, those two things are now brought uh, together, iniquity and sin, guilt of my sin. I confess my transgressions to the Lord. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. And this is uh, beautifully summarized in the small catechism um, on the section in the small catechism on, uh, on confession. What is confession? Confession consists of two parts. One is that we confess our sins. The other is that we receive absolution or forgiveness. That's it. We confess, God forgives. And I stopped mid-sentence. Can anyone remember how the sentence goes on? One is that we confess our sins. The other is to receive absolution, that is forgiveness. And we hear it from the pastor as if Jesus was speaking himself. I don't know properly. Yeah, yeah. From the confessor, um, um, not doubting but firmly believing uh, that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. How did how did God forgive David's sin? I told him through Nathan. By the prophet, mouth of the prophet Nathan, I have sinned. God has forgiven. If God forgives you, why do we need to confess our sins? God knows them. Why do we have to tell God what that we have sinned? What's the point? Why are we telling God things that he already knows? Well, for me, because I'm only one person, you know, that's means that that's how I do come that time. But I mean, if there's something much bigger that's hurting anybody else, then I would um, have to um, probably bring it to you to help me. But why do we? Why do we have to say it at all? I mean, why? Why do we? Kind of, why? Do, why? Why is it? I mean, here we say the the whole psalm is saying when we confess our sins, we receive forgiveness. And that's the greatest blessing, you know, this, the, the, source, the source of true happiness and joy is to have your sins forgiven. But why, do we, why, do, why does God need, want us to tell him? I don't think he does, does he? Well, this is what the psalm is saying. It's all about, all about acknowledging our sins. It's about confessing our sins. It's a recognition of it of our, for ourselves. Um, because... Otherwise, you might just be living quite complacently in your sin. Right. So, uh, articulating it is—we don't do it for God's benefit. We do it for our own benefit. So, your your conscience, uh, you know, your conscience accuses you internally, and there are, there's there are two dangers always present present when your conscience accuses you. One is that you can't bear to hear it, so you you silence it, and and that leads you to uh, persist in your rebellion against God. Or the other one is that it it eats away at your faith because you begin to despair of yourself. You, you have, the guilt over, consumes you. You're, you're, you're kind of constantly 
um, uh, constantly driven by this sense of guilt as opposed to knowledge of God's favor. And so acknowledging our sins, articulating them, saying, actually saying, this is my sin, and asking for forgiveness for the actual sins of which we're guilty, as opposed to just saying, you know, um, not instead of, but as well as generally confessing our sins in general, like in the Lord's Prayer. But we confess those things which we know and feel in our hearts, so that we may know, we may know, that when that forgiveness is pronounced on those things that burden us, then we know that that burden has been taken away. Personal forgiveness for personal sins. And God will forgive us the iniquity of our sin. Question, Tapani? Yep. Um, <clears throat> so, in confession, there seems to be a, a couple of different options. You can go to God direct through Christ in prayer, mm-hmm. or you, seem, you can go to your pastor in prayer. Or is there a possibility that you can go um, through a friend who can be your confessor? Is there any set way that is right or wrong? Uh, good question. So uh, in the New Testament, Jesus three times uh, gives the office of the keys. Twice in Matthew, once in John's Gospel. And they're all different. Uh, the content is the same, but uh, the, the audience is different. So once to Peter, once to the whole church in Matthew, and once to the apostles in uh, John's Gospel. And so the way that this has been understood uh, in, in the church is that the, the office of the keys, the kind of the, the gift of pronouncing forgiveness on someone who's confessing their sins has been given to the whole church. So it's not a personal property of any particular kind of person. And things that are, belong to the whole church are normally administered by those who, who have been entrusted with them, the stewards of the gifts. So the, the ordained ministry. But every Christian can also pronounce with God forgiveness on, any, on, on another Christian. You know, you don't, have to, you don't have to go and find somebody who's ordained to confess your sins. Um, the difference is that if you, if you do speak with a uh, with a per, you know, with a with a pastor. First of all, you speak with somebody who's given a vow of uh, of confidentiality as part of their office. If you ever hear me divulge things heard in confession, please report it and make sure that I'm in defrock before the next Sunday. It's a, it's a, it's an sort of unforgivable breach, if you like, of not 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 unforgivable in terms of you know uh, salvation, but unforgivable in terms of remaining in the ministry. Breach of uh, the duties of the ministry, and secondly, that the ordained persons, you know, they they if you like, they speak on behalf of the whole church. But any any Christian can offer consolation to any other Christian too. Um, the in the early church, the office of the keys tended to be exercised in the public. So if you are guilty of some public sin, you know, some 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 scandalous sin, you would stand in front of the entire church and confess your sins to be absolved in front of the whole church. And at some point, it was in fact uh, Irish monks uh, who, who decided to start a new practice to make it less onerous and, to, uh, and, and allow people to confess privately. And that then spread to the rest of the church and became a common practice. But again, that, that personal confession 
personal absolution has a particular power, not because God forgives more, but because it speaks to us more power, to us more powerfully. You know, there's a big difference between knowing that your your uh, spouse loves you and your spouse telling you that they love you. It's not you know the facts don't change, but but you change when you hear these words. So answer your question, David. Yes, just continue on. Um, but you can go directly to God in Christ. Yes. In your own private prayer. Yes. But I understand what you said. It's 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 more maybe because of our human human nature. It's good to hear it voiced the word voiced into our ears that you know you are forgiven for Christ's sake. Yes. Uh, yeah. The the other thing is, say um, you you commit a a, a heinous uh, sin and you go to Pastor Tappany, uh and how how do you gauge you know to release someone in forgiveness because do you have to kind of work out well does is David um you know truly repentant or is David just kind of going for the through the motions um and if if David is truly repentant and you do for, offer David forgiveness I'm I'm using myself sorry as an example um. Do, do you then kind of give David extra advice to, to do what to do afterwards? What, whatever they, that sin may be, you may think pastorally, David, it'd be good to go and um, do restitution or something. Is that within your remit? Because say, I would imagine within a Roman Catholic system, they would say, um, you know, do your penance, whatever that may take. But do you, is that something that you would have as a, as a Lutheran pastor? Yes, if, you know, in the Lutheran practice, uh, first of all, um, love always errs on the side of grace. So you don't have to convince me that you're really truly penitent. You know, if I'm not convinced that you are sincere. Um, the that issue would only come up if somebody has done something that requires restitution of some sort. You know, you've you've committed a crime, for example. Well, have you have you? Have you gone? You know, I, I have you gone? Or are you planning to go to the police to to you know to admit to it? And if somebody's saying no, I'm not going to do that. I just want I don't want to be in trouble with God. Then you say, well, you're not actually you're not you're not yet sorry. I will we'll come to that in a minute in the psalm as well. You know, you're not sorry. You just want to get out of trouble. But that's 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 unusual. So so the assumption always is sincerity and genuineness, unless there there are good weighty reasons to doubt it. Uh, in terms of the restitution, if you like. Yes, if, 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 if the sin is that somebody has wronged another person, then part of the spiritual uh, counsel there is, say, well, is that if you're, if you're truly penitent and you receive forgiveness, then part of that penitence is that you will then act accordingly, uh, not as a condition of, of forgiveness or God's grace, but as, a, as an outcome of it. Um, and, uh, and yes, there might be, you know, it would be, I think it'd be irresponsible of a pastor not to offer spiritual counsel also for you know for the future. You know, so you know, Nathan might say to David, you know, maybe next time the armies go to war, either stay off the roof at even you know, at bath time, or go with the armies and, and you know, stay away from temptation. Or if you're you know somebody's really burdened by their sin and, and is is sort of has a has a tendency to to live in a state of permanent guilt, maybe. You, the the um, the counsel needs to be not about how to avoid sin, but rather how to find great uh, firm refuge in, in God's grace and His promises, rather than being being sort of um, uh, trapped and imprisoned in guilt. 
So it would be very, in that sense. But it's, it's not penance, um, but rather it's counsel. But those two things, they're separate from the absolution itself. The absolution is absolution. And it's, it comes without strings attached. They are, they, you know, that's on account of Christ. And not of, of, of any kind of subsequent action or, 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 or such thing. So, <clears throat> uh, so, so far, so, so the, the sin of has been, the whole problem of the sin has now been, um, has now been solved by the very simple pair of confession and absolution. Um, and this, this is a key verse, just like uh, uh, that uh, the opening verses were really uh, central to Paul's argument on justification through faith in uh, Romans. Uh, this verse, um, as, as has already been referred to, Sarah mentioned it, uh, is, uh, is really key to uh, the first letter of John. So in 1 John chapter 1, we have these famous words, uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God forgives because he's gracious. And when there is no deceit in us and that, that uh, sincerity uh, consists of our, uh, our, our confession of our sin. And so this really is a is a is a is a is a marvelous uh, expression of um, of God's free gift of forgiveness to the penitent. Likewise, in Proverbs twenty eight, we have uh, this verse: um, "Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy." That's Proverbs twenty eight verse thirteen. And now comes the instruction. That was the story of David's sin, his concealment of the sin, his confession of the sin, and the forgiveness of sins. And now comes, therefore, on account of this, let everyone who is uh, godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Um, <clears throat> or songs of deliverance might, you might translate. Or even um, uh, sort of, uh, re uh, the, the joy of deliverance. So this being the case, let everyone who is godly, godly here is, it really means um, is like pious, devout. Um, what does piety or devoutness consist of? Offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Think again to like what Isaiah writes in, in chapter 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And this, by the way, Again, might may well have been uh, these this particular sentiment might well have been inspired to, to David by his remembering of Saul. Remember what happens to Saul when he loses God's favor, when God withdraws His blessing from it, 
and it's too late. King Saul. And so David, no doubt, is breathing a, a more than a big sigh of relief that God has not abandoned him. He has not yet suffered the fate of Saul. God may still be found. Paul writes to the Corinthians about, you know, he says, today is the day of salvation. Or in Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So every day we are being reminded that this thing is an urgent thing while there is still grace, before God withdraws his grace from us. So we offer prayer to God, you know, let everyone who's God offer to you pray to you at a time when you may be found, which is now you've been called. You're not promised it tomorrow. And there is nothing to say that God may not um, ultimately, if you continue to despise his call, if you continue to reject his offer, that you will, through your impenitence and through your continued refusal to heed his voice, that he will not do to you what he did to Saul. And I fear that we, you know, we, we, some of us at least may know such cases where people's hearts are hardened because they refuse to, and, and God takes away the blessing of his word from them. Sure, in the rush of great waters they shall not reach. We think of the flood or the crossing of the Red Sea, these destructive forces. Even if the flood were to come upon you, you know, why did the flood come upon the world in the time of Noah? Punishment. Punishment for wickedness. But Noah and his family, eight persons in all, were saved in this rush of great waters. And this, uh, this might just at least have a small, quiet bell in the back of our mind saying, that sounds a bit like baptism. That when we turn to God for salvation in confession, then waters, you know, even distraught, flood, even flood waters will not sweep us away because we've already been rescued out of them. You are a hiding place for me. Uh, you preserve me from trouble. So again, God is, is not the, the focus all the time is on what God is giving, who, what God is to us, as we will see at the end. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. It's God, 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 God is doing all the work. It is grace. It's a gift. And then, verse 8 and 9, we have a change of, uh, change of subject again. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, who is the I? Um, what are the possible options? Who could be the I? Who said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go? Who might it be? God. It could be God. Who else could it be? Well, it could be David himself addressing um, addressing uh, the, his audience. We have this sort of change of subject. I mean, um, Psalm 91 is a, is, a, is a good example of how this sort of change of subject where the whole psalm 
is spoken by the psalmist concerning God, God in the third person, and then all of a sudden in verse 14, without any explanation, the, the, the speaker changes. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. So God is clearly speaking. And, and some Bible translations even put quotation marks at this point, uh, saying to make it look like, to make clear that the translators think this is God. It, in a sense, it doesn't, it doesn't matter um, because the, what matters is the content, whether it's the, uh, David, whom even Jesus calls a prophet, or whether it's, it's, it's God speaking directly. Although, one thing that speaks of Davidic uh, authorship is, that, is this uh, Psalm 51, verse 13, which I referred to. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. And, put, and David here says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. But the end result is the same. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. It's like you think of an instructor um, uh, in, you know, so like a, in some sport or something. You know, the, you know, the, your coach is there and they're constantly right by your side, keeping an eye on you and, and watching everything you do. Um, uh, you know, um, one, of my, uh, one of our children is, is currently rowing at university and, and, and part of his experience is that he's in the boat with his mate and the coach is on the towpath on a bike and constantly cycling on the side and watching what they do and telling them what to do. I used to have swimming lessons when I was a teenager and, and it was the same sort of thing. The coach would walk alongside the side of the pool and then I'd get to the end of the pool and he said, okay, I'll be watching you. You need to do this with your arms or your hands or whatever it is. I'll teach you. I will instruct you. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. God will be attentive to us. Or David, <laughs> the teacher. And that's also part of the ministry of, uh, again, the office of the ministry. Uh, is is that you don't just turn up in the pulpit on a Sunday and speak speak to a room full of people as an audience and you go away. But it's pastoral care in the church also consists of this counseling with your eye upon you that you that you know that your pastor should know about you should know about your life should be able to uh, to give you a pastoral counsel that is pertinent to you and your life and your needs. But the instruction is given. How should the instruction be received? Verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. And this idea of, you know, you, you, saying to a horse, you know, we need, to get, we need to get this chariot from A to B, off you go. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't work like that. Or if you get a... An animal, you know, if you want an animal to help you with, I don't know, uh, the, the treading grain. You don't just say, you know, to a mule, say, no, I, I really could do with a bit, a bit more strength than I have in treading the grain. Can you give us a hand? No, what you will do, you will, you will take the horse and you will, uh, and you will attach it to the chariot and you put uh, a bit in its mouth and reins and you make it go where it goes because it doesn't know, it doesn't understand. Or you attach the animal to a, uh, to a wheel. And, and, and it does. In other words, it acts under compulsion and coercion without understanding. And this is again what you know, David mentioned earlier about the kind of, you know, what, what if people confess without true penitence? Is that, you know, if, if you simply want forgiveness so that, to get out of trouble so that you can just carry on as you were. You know, you see always, <clears throat> it's a kind of classic case of um, somebody goes to confession and says, I'd like to confess a sin that I haven't committed yet. 
but tomorrow I'm going to poison my wife, so could you absolve me? You know. <clears throat> there are real life examples of the people trying that. I'm, I'm not sure about the poisoning of the wife, but you know. I, I need, I'm going to roll back to, to tomorrow, can you please pronounce God's forgiveness? Well, no, not really. Because you don't actually want freedom from sin, you just want freedom of tra- from trouble. And of course, you know, Jesus himself says in, in, in John 8, he who commits sin is a slave to sin. And we act, when we act sinfully, we act instinctively. You know, sharks aren't nasty fish because they kill other fish. They just, that's what sharks do. And we, we sin, when we sin, we act out of our innate nature because of the fall, because of Genesis 3. But what God gives us is understanding. God's word gives us understanding. In our, in our natural state, we are blinded by sin. Our understanding is blinded so that we do not, you know, we have a sense of right and wrong, or we have a, a vague sense of what is right and what is wrong. The law of God is written on our hearts, but our understanding is clouded. And therefore, the first use of the law is this bit and bridle. The curb, you just you know, if if you do this, we'll send you to prison. If you do this, we're going to charge you a fine. If you do this, we'll chop off your head, uh, whatever it is. Sheer coercion. You know, governments. Uh, the, the saying is that governments have a monopoly on violence. I'm not allowed to lock you up, however badly you misbehave. But the state, the state can do that. Coercion, which leads to no salvation. It simply leads to. A control of behavior so that life doesn't become unbearable as we all just follow our, our device of our hearts. God has a better plan for us. So he gives us his law not simply to, uh, to keep us on the straight and narrow for the sake of order, but he gives us his law to show us our sin, to lead us to repentance, so that we may understand that this sin is a disease from which we need healing, that it's a death from which we need resurrection. And through forgiveness of sins, he gives us a new heart and a new mind so that we might act with understanding. Um, <clears throat> so that we might live by God's, the light of God's word and the wisdom and the guidance of God's word. No longer like, uh, like uh, un- unthinking and unreasoning animals, but as dear children who know their father's will. And who know their father's will such that they will pursue righteousness and when they fail in that pursuit, they ask for forgiveness. So the, the, it's, it's not a recipe for perfection, again, or a recipe for success. Rather, it's a recipe for the right kind of relationship. Not of an animal to its master, but a child to its father. It doesn't imply perfection. It doesn't imply, doesn't, doesn't imply success. It simply implies that you are now righteous before God because by his mercy he no longer imputes to you your sins but he now imputes to you the righteousness of Christ and deals with you as a dearly beloved child, even when you're wayward and fail, when you're iniquitous or when you've missed the mark um, or when you fall uh, uh, or when you become act crookedly. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. So we began with blessed or happy are those whose sins are forgiven. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But the, to the one who trusts in the Lord, the one who trusts in the Lord is surrounded by steadfast love. And the steadfast love, chesed, this loving kindness of God, is more than mercy. It's, the, it's God's goodwill, his favour. 
is and and much of the early early part of the Reformation was was a big uh, was um, a fight over what is meant by God's grace. Is the grace of God kind of like a power that God you know that that God gives to us? You know, God is gracious to us; He enables us to do good works. So he enables, or is it as Luther insisted, the favor of God, favor Dei? That God no longer looks upon our sins and does not no longer impute to us our sins, which are are real and are ours, but He imputes to us instead the righteousness of Christ. And because of the righteousness of Christ, this alien righteousness that is given to us by His grace, by His favor, is now the basis of our relationship with God, the Father. This is what the whole gospel is about, and Luther was willing to risk. Uh, uh, the the uh, you know being being chucked in the middle of a bonfire over this question because without it, unless we have this we have no hope because our sins will crush us and therefore steadfast you know those who trust in the Lord again the um, the Septuagint translation you know, who hopes in the Lord and trust of course is is the very meaning of faith we have hope because we trust in Him who's gracious to us. <clears throat> and therefore, we end with a, a call to rejoicing. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. And those two words, be glad and rejoice, they are they're kind of two words that mean the same thing. So some, some Bible translations translate the other way, other way around. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Same thing. Joy and joy. But what is the joy in? Obviously. What was the question? What is the joy in? The joy in. The forgiveness of sins, I guess. And yes, and so it's in, in God and what he has done. Through this, so the forgiveness of sins, which then leads to God's favour and, and to the restoration of our standing before God. So that our sins are covered. There, it is. We have we have got to the point where, though we committed sins, as far as God is concerned, they no longer exist. Now, there may be there. So many sins have temporal consequences. So the 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 uh, temporal effects of of David's sin did not go away, but he was no longer considered guilty by God. And says, "Rejoice in the Lord." And I, I looked at one uh, with some. Uh, what early church fathers had to say about this and there's one lovely phrase uh, well very simple but powerful phrase um, by a, a, a fourth century writer if I remember correctly Theodoret of uh, uh, Cyrus or Sir he says uh, he calls us to rejoice in the, uh, them to rejoice in the Lord and not in themselves and this of course is, is a, uh, gives us a very famous Bible passage in the New Testament Philippians. Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. And the key thing there is to rejoice in the Lord. So it's not about, am I now joyful? Am I now this? Am I now that? Do I have this? You know, if you're, if you, you're then rejoicing in yourself. No, rejoice in the Lord. Let's say, find your, seek your joy in who the Lord is, what he has done, and that let that be your gladness. And shout for joy, all you upright 
in heart. So we we've come back to the very beginning. It's 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 very well constructed poem. We've we've returned to the beginning. Blessed are those. Blessed is he. So be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O ye righteous. Why are they righteous? Because their sin has been forgiven. That's their righteousness. So he'd there be declared righteous on account of trusting in the Lord, confessing their sins and trusting in the Lord. And that is what it means to be upright in heart. Upright in heart means basically having your, your it's the upright, it's the opposite of crooked. And, and your heart, so your, 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 um, you can maybe in English, you could say right-minded, being right-minded uh, people. And that brings us to the end of this psalm. There's a huge amount, of course, we could, we could have stopped at any point and, and, and gone through, a, uh, through the window that is Romans 4 and spent a long time on doctrine and justification. Longer on just doctrine and justification, we might have uh, talked more about the office of the keys. There are lots of, there are lots of um, pastures that we kind of just looked, through, looked at through the window in this psalm. But it's a wonderful summary of what the gospel really is all about, which is why it's also quoted in our service when it comes to confession. Um, we have officially three minutes left, uh, but you might have at least three minutes worth of, of reflections on this, uh, either on the text or what, what, um, or what the text brings to mind um, for you. So, David, go first. Yeah, I've got a, a little window that we've looked through to look through. Um, I really enjoyed the study. So the, the question is about noise in the place of worship. Couple of things that the scriptures have said in verse seven: "You shall surround me with the songs of deliverance." Um, that sounds very kind of religious and poetical. What does that mean in the reality of our Christian life? Is God singing singing over us uh, the songs of deliverance? Also, verse eleven, uh, it says, "And shout for joy, all you upright in heart." Um, how would you find Tappany if you were leading an act of public worship if someone shouted for joy um, in a charismatic circle? They would just think that's normal, but in a liturgical service, um, it may be slightly different. So I have no um, yay or nay about this. I'm just curious uh, in terms of worship uh, when we when we make a noise of shout for joy. What does that look like? And also verse seven, these you surround me with songs of deliverance. Is that the Lord singing over us, as it says in Zephaniah, or is it not? Uh, thank you. Good questions, um, <clears throat> which deserve long answers, which we haven't got time for. Uh, I'll, so uh, I'll, I'll go. I'll work backwards. So a spontaneous uh, shouting and, and and joyful noises. Uh, not outlawed as such, although God is a God of order and not of chaos, as as First Corinthians says, and one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. Uh, so within that remit, the, if you think of surrounding with shouts of deliverance, uh, we have, first of all, whenever we, like, we have this expressed in our liturgy, whenever we sing the Sanctus, Holy, 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 we sing, we sing it with angels and archangels with all the company of heaven. So we think of the heavenly worship. I think I think that this has a lot to do with forgiveness of sins leads to restoration, 
into the assembly of God, into the people of God. And the people of God is not a quiet people, but a singing people. Mm-hmm. So when you are, when your sins are, you know, if you think of, if, if we put this into a later Christian context, um, or into the New Testament context, uh, what sin leads to is exclusion. Exclusion from uh, God's uh, means of grace. Even if you manage to conceal your sins so that nobody knows about it, uh, in reality you are. You're no longer part, you know, even if you turn up in your, your present in body, you're no longer part of that assembly because you have decided to exclude yourself by, by holding on to your sins. And if your sins become known, like in the case of David, you are in fact excluded, excommunicated, like in First, First Corinthians chapter 5. And so, but when you are restored, when your sins are forgiven, you are, you are brought back into the midst of the song of the church, which is a shout of deliverance. You know, with this, ultimately, the church's song is a song of joy. I mean, we are now in Lent, and in Lent, uh, customarily, we don't sing Alleluia until Easter. Luther himself was appalled by this. He, he thought this was a really terrible idea. He said, the Alleluia is the permanent song of the church. He didn't change it because he didn't think it was his place to go and single-handedly change ancient tradition, but he didn't like it. But you know, the, and, and they decided, Alleluia is the permanent song of the church. I, I like that sentiment, even though I'm quite happy to observe the tradition. And so I, 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 when it says surrounded with shouted deliverance, I, I, I would say that that's, that's chiefly uh, what that means. I think also Jesus' teaching about the, uh, the, uh, the parable of the lost sheep, you know, that, for it, that there is um, joy in heaven when a sinner repents. That the you know when when a sinner confesses his sins and is reserves absolution, the angels erupt in songs of of, of rejoicing, which is a pretty uh, powerful image. It also brings to my mind uh, sometimes when you go to a church and there has been a very powerful sermon which has really touched people, and you can do you can know it because all the sudden all the hymns and everything, you know people are just singing singing like out of their hearts and and it's not it's not shouting but it's really like you can say oh, now people have really been touched i hope that answers your question david sufficiently given that yeah yeah two two great answers thank you very much with with you thank you anything else anyone else there's of course an awful lot more we could say and we could have spent a lot of time reflecting on, on, on our personal experiences, but we'll draw, clo- draw to a close now, and let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you do not count our sins against us, but you sent your sinless Son to take our sins upon him, so that all our sins could be imputed to him and his righteousness to us. We thank you that you have made, part- made us partakers of this salvation through faith in him by the power of the gospel. We pray that you would keep us upright in heart. We never conceal our sins, excuse them, but confess our sins, seek forgiveness from your mercy and grace that are in Christ Jesus, and that you would lead us and instruct us in the way we should go, that by your mercy and by your power, the righteousness and likeness of Christ might take also form in the way that we live, that our life would bring glory to your name. 
So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen.